Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to turn a few times this morning. I hope that's okay. We're going to go somewhere else, yeah. But we're not going to go too far from... Okay, we're opened up to 1 Corinthians 14. Last week we began a brand new series, and we did so with two questions. But this morning I want to add two questions to the two we asked last week. The first question is really important. Are there any commands given to the local church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting. I hope all of us can agree that disobedience is not a good thing, especially if it's disobedience to what God has commanded. And we're going to keep this question in front of us every Sunday during this series. Are there any commands given to the local church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? Last week, I introduced us to one of those commands. Look at 1 Corinthians 14 and 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. How many have those two words, each one? In verse 26, we're going to we're going to follow those two words. They're 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 frequently stated to local churches. Each one. When you assemble, how many of those words when you assemble? That's what we've done, right? We have assembled here this morning. <laughs> and so verse 26 is a church meeting. It's a church meeting. And I want us to keep that word meeting, that thought in our minds. Let all things be done for edification. In other words, when we come together and we assemble, let everything we do build up the body, build you up, you build me up, each one. And last week I had mentioned that the word let is a present imperative verb. So here's the significance of knowing 
the tense of the verb, that it's a present imperative verb. It simply means this, what was commanded 2,000 years ago needs to be obeyed 2,000 years later. It's a present imperative verb. And, and Paul, Paul began uh, this each one command back in chapter 12, verse 7. But, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one. Did you know that each one in this room has been given something by the Holy Spirit for someone else? Each one. And, and the word manifestations simply means to see. We have been given something by the Holy Spirit that we need to see. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's not the manifestation of me. If my gift, for example, is the gift of teaching, the focus of whatever my gift is, is not to make me elevated. It's not to make a big deal out of me. But we have a tendency to do that, don't we? Somebody sings. Each one has a psalm. Psalms are songs. So someone in the assembly has a song. They have a lovely singing voice. And, and we have a tendency sometimes to, to make a big deal out of whom? The singer. When really we ought to be making a big deal out of the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that needs to be seen. And we could see the Holy Spirit participating in the meeting when each one participates. Last week I asked when the workforce is much larger than the work, what happens? And Greg answered, unemployment happens, right? When the workforce, right? If, if there's a lot of people in line for the work, but there's not enough work for all the workforce, unemployment sets in. And I shared with you, uh, what I see happening in the church for a long time, it's called spectator Christianity. Too many people in the pews. Can't have everyone participate. How, how are we going to assemble on a Sunday with 100, 150, 200 people in attendance and each one obey this command when they assemble? How's that going to happen? Well, if you were to tell a large congregation, hey, how are you doing in this command? And, and what's my question? You remember what my question is that I want to keep before us? What commands are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a much, what, larger church setting? So if you have 100 people in attendance on Sunday, we're not going to be able to obey this verse, are we? Unless, unless what? We, we're, well, we're going to have to be there for about four or five hours. And, and probably nobody wants to do that. There's only one thing that they probably can do, it's even close, is songs of praise. They well, can all participate in that. Yeah, but, but each... That's, that's not much. Yeah. yeah. But each one is... Um, bringing to light all of the spiritual gifts that were given in 1 Corinthians 12. Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The, the likelihood of each one participating is not likely. 
Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 and 16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So question number two last week. Remember when I asked this one? If someone asked you to describe church, and the only thing you can use to describe church was your Bible, what would that church look like? And would it at all look like 1 Corinthians 14 and 26? And does that even matter? Should it matter? And, and, and what can we do about it if we believe it does matter? You know what I want us to do? I, I was wondering how would I how would I respond to what we're learning? And and here's what I, I want us to seriously think about. I want to challenge everyone here this morning to do something next Sunday. Every one of us. I want us this week to be really close to our Lord. I want us to be thinking about him, praying to him, reading about him, worshiping him in our hearts. And I want us to come next week, maybe three minutes. Would you be willing to participate in the meeting for three minutes? You say, well, what can I do? I don't know. Why don't you think about that? Each one has a psalm. I don't know if anybody here has a good singing voice. So we may not, we may not, we may not experience each one has a psalm, but maybe you can read a psalm. And maybe you could share with us why you read it. Maybe you could share with us in three minutes or less something that happened this week between you and your God. And you'd like to, you'd like to share that with us. See, I don't think we realize that the early church, when they gathered, they were very informal. I mean, for every person to participate, right, it's got to be an informal gathering. Could it be that we have way too much structure? Could it be that we're overly organized? Uh, that, that we've gotten to a point where church is more of a production than it is a participation. Each one participates. Well, I have a third question. I hope we all know this series is not intended to compare house churches to smaller or larger church buildings. To think that that's really what this is all about misstates the big idea. What is the big idea? Are you willing to ask this question? Does bigger ever interfere with Bible? Does bigger ever interfere with Bible? And if so, how so? And if you come to the conclusion that it does, does that matter? Does that matter? See, I don't think when all the epistles were written to churches, I don't think, how many agree with me that the epistles were written to real churches, real local churches, right? And these were small gatherings, there are no large gatherings in the Bible. They're all small churches meeting in homes. So now think about it. The Holy Spirit is moving the 
the gospel writers, the epistle writers, to write things that are meant specifically for that setting. What are we to do with those texts? How can we apply those texts to a setting that in no way resembles what the early church looked like? Do you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of scripture that's going to be turned upside down on its head if we totally recreate something that the Holy Spirit was not addressing when he was moving the apostles to write letters to churches. <clears throat> so do we get rid of 1 Corinthians 14 and 26? And what about all the other commands that we're going to learn about? What are we going to do with them? Has bigger interfered with Bible? Is that an important question, do you think? And if it is, if it is, how so? Well, we're going to touch on, on another how so. And we're going to do so by looking at the subject money matters. Money matters. And here's why. What we do with God's money matters. What, what we do with God's money matters. What does he want us to do with his money? Are we, are we to build the body? Is that what his, his money is meant for? To build the body? Where does he want us to invest his money? What does he tell churches to do with that money? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. going to try to keep everything in close proximity to 2 Corinthians 9. Let me uh, begin by reading verse 7. Let each one. How many have that in verse 7? Let each one. Each one. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, I never teach or preach that God is commanding you to give. But what I do teach and preach is that God would like you to want to give. That, that your heart would be cheerful about it. And that's a good first place to begin, you know. What's your heart like? Are, are you a cheerful giver or do you give grudgingly? But each one is to do it. L listen to 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Are you beginning to get a sense that, that God is looking for each person to participate? To participate. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, he wanted each person to participate in the ministry of the meeting. When we assemble, right? Each one participates in the ministry of the meeting. Now we're talking about each one participating in the ministry of money. In the, now, why would I call it ministry? Well, look at verse 12. For the, what's the third word in verse 12 in your Bible? Ministry or administration. How many have the word ministry? 
few of you have ministry, some have administration. Money is a ministry. But when you think of a ministry, what do you think of? Okay, so that would be a ministry, right? Service, Service in some capacity, right, is a ministry, right? I mean, if we're, if we're going to get overly technical, let's just say this. Anything that you're doing for God could be a ministry. Anything that you're doing for God. If, if the church doesn't have a lot of money and they have landscaping that needs to be done, and to save the church money from having to pay for landscaping, you decide to do the landscaping, that's your ministry. That, that's your ministry. But money is a ministry. And God wants us to know what to do with it. What does God command the church to do with money? Well, there are three categories given to the church, and only three categories. Only three categories. Number one, he wants us to take ministry and invest it in the gospel, preaching. Number two, he wants the church to take his money and invest it in the poor, Preaching and the poor. The third thing that he says, this is kind of self-serving, but I'm going to prove it from the scriptures. Uh, he wants his money invested in pastors. So preaching, the poor, and pastors. These are the only three categories given to the church by way of command as to what God wants done with his money. I got a formula for us. But let me, before I give you the formula, let me ask you this. How many would love to be blessed of God? Would you like that? Would you like some more? Oh, sure. Oh. I mean, for a second there, I thought you had enough. Count me out. We'll just give your blessings to someone else. Here's what we're going to learn from the scriptures. Preaching plus poor plus pastors equals prosperity. When you know where to invest God's money. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. So the Philippians shared money with Paul for what purpose? What was he doing? Preaching the gospel, right? And Paul is saying, God's going to bless you for that. God's going to bless you for that. So, so how can we take God's money and invest it in preaching? What would be some ways a church would do that? Missionaries, supporting missionaries, evangelists, um, what other ways could we invest God's money in the gospel? Preaching. Speakers. Pardon me? Speakers. Okay, well, I think that would fall more in the teaching category than the preaching of the gospel category. Um, missionaries, evangelists, gospel tracts. Mm -hmm. Has anybody ever gotten saved because they read a gospel tract? Gospel tracts cost money, right? They're not printed uh, free. Um, what, what are there some, some other ways that we could get the gospel out? Programs. 
Okay, so there could be an event, right? You you invite people, and the gospel is preached. Okay. Okay, that could be used, and there might be money needed for some of those things, right? Now, here's the second thing that God wants us to do with our money. He wants us to give to the poor. Give to the poor. And he wants us to do so both inside the church and outside the church. And here's what the Bible teaches. Good deeds precede the good news. Good deeds precede the good news. Acts 2 and 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need as anyone might have need. Francis Chan wrote a book called Amazing Love. Or no, scratch that, Crazy Love. Crazy Love. And it's kind of a crazy thought that you would sell your possessions and give it to the poor, needy people. Have you ever had a garage sale? Right? And and so you sell some of your possessions at a garage sale. What do you normally do with the proceeds? You spend it, right? And and so you, and you probably spend it on yourself. After all, it's your it's money yourself. to begin with. It's your stuff. You bought it initially. But here they're selling their possessions, and they're taking the proceeds, and they're giving it to poor, needy saints. Well, and, but you want to know something? There's a lot of Christian ministries, back to ministries, there's a lot of Christian ministries that have thrift shops. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's some of the places we do we do give. Right. We give the stuff to everything. So now people are bombarding that thrift shop. I mean, the Salvation Army. I mean, they make a living off of that that philosophy of that ministry. People bombard them with their possessions. They give it to them free of charge. Um, they probably sell some of them. Maybe some of them are worth selling. They discard. Who knows? But that money is supposed to be used for the gospel and for the poor and. And that's the Salvation Army's model of their ministry, but by using it to give to the poor. Why can't local churches do things like that? Why can't a local church have a thrift shop where all the proceeds, all the time that is donated by the people in the church, you know, if the thrift shop is open from 9 in the morning till 9 at night, you might need several people to mind the store, if you will. And they don't—they just donate a couple hours a day, but they don't charge. They don't want to get paid for the couple of hours, but they—they they want to take those proceeds, and we're going to invest that back into the poor. Listen to what happened when they did this in Acts 2 and 45. Two verses later, Acts 2 and 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, good deeds precede the good news. Even an atheist likes a good deed. I don't know too many people that don't like a good deed. I, I don't know too many people that if they're hard on their luck and they have a need, and, and all of a sudden you come alongside of them to meet their need, most people are going to like that. They're, they're not going to dislike that. Now, in that context, it was the saints that were poor. Think about this. The church was selling their possessions, taking the proceeds, and giving it to poor Christians. And unsaved people were being saved. Doesn't that sound backwards? Wouldn't we think, 
oh, if you really want to save unsafe people, maybe you ought to give to poor unsafe people, right, in order to reach unsafe people. That would be our common sense. But how many remember Jesus saying this? If you have love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. See, the church ought to be an advertisement for God's love. People want love. Maybe they need love. Maybe they've looked for love in all the wrong places. There's, there should be no greater place on earth for people to discover real love than a real church. And you know what they see? They see crazy love. These people genuinely love one another. They genuinely love one another. But listen to what Daniel 4 and 27 says. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. What was the formula? Preaching plus poor plus pastors equals prosperity. This is what God's word says. You know, this is what God's word says. You know what faith does? Faith believes what they read. Really, faith believes what they read. We're being challenged to do something. We're actually being commanded as a church to do something with God's money. And here's what God is saying. If you do what I'm commanding you to do with the money that I've given you, you'll be taken care of. You won't end up on the short end of the stick. You won't regret that you obeyed me. Preaching, go ahead. goes along with the saying, you can't outgive God. You can't. You can't. You can't. Listen to this. Galatians 6 and 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So you have two groups of people in that verse. You have all people. I take them to be the unsaved of all people, especially those of the household of faith. Those are clearly what? Saved folk. But notice it's especially. My grandfather used to have a saying. He used to tell me, Michael, charity begins at home. Charity begins at home. He used to get so upset with me when he would hear the things that I would do for other people that I wouldn't do for him. You know, I mean, I might I might go out of my way for so and so's father or so and so's grandfather or, you know, maybe I was trying to get into the good graces of someone, you know, and so I would purposely do something good. And my grandfather would be like, he'd look at the lawn and he'd say, I think it's time for a cut. I think it's time for a cut. Well, Paul has a specific, especially the household of faith group of people in mind. Listen to the people. That was Galatians 6.10, right? Do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. Listen to who that specific group is. Galatians 6, 6 through 7. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Preaching plus poor plus pastors equals prosperity. I didn't make up this formula. This is what the scriptures command of the church. Now you're sharing 
all good things with the one who teaches you. And you guys do that. And I thank you for that. And every time I'm sent a love offering at the end of the month or the beginning of the month, that's because of what you people here share with Living Word Bible Church. You will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. If you don't like how much you're reaping, look at how much you're sowing. Right? Because Paul, to the when he talks to 2 Corinthians, when he talks to them, he says, he who sows little reaps little. He who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. And it gets back to what Richard was saying. You can't outgive God. But do we have enough faith to put the scriptures to the test? Do we have enough faith to believe that I will not end up on the short end of the stick? Now let's look at what we've learned and let's <laughs> compare it to most churches. Remember my question. What commands are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? If you were to look at most churches' assets and grab a pie chart and start to divide that pie up into where most of their assets are, where would you think most churches have their assets invested? Building. In the building. Yeah. Well, but the building. Yeah. But I don't know if you've noticed something. God's money is supposed to be invested in a building but it's the building of a body. See, it's, it's about people. It's not about a place. It's immaterial. See if you can answer this question the way Jesus would. Church A has a small gathering in a home. And let's say they collect $36,000 a year. And they take all 36000 and they invest it in those three commands that we just learned about. They give it to preaching, they give it to the poor, and they give it to pastors. All of it, every nickel of it. Church B is a large church. They gather in a large building. And they collect $1 million a year. And they give 500,000 of it to those three commanded categories that we just learned about. What church gave more money? The first one. The one that only gave 36,000. And that would be true. And here's why it's true. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Luke 21. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Now, a church with only $36,000 a year coming in, that's probably a poor church, comparatively speaking. And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, listen, put in all that she had. Question number four. <clears throat> what pleases God? 
I'm sorry? A cheerful giver. But let's assume you're in a church and there's a whole boatload of cheerful givers. But they're not investing that money in these three categories. Well, but maybe they don't know anything about this. Maybe they don't think anything, right? Maybe they don't think anything of the fact that $150,000 a year of their money is going to a building. Why would we even think that's an issue? I would say for a very, very long time, no Christian would ever think that a church building is something that is an issue. Why would it be an issue? Why would it be an issue if we compare it to everything we read in the New Testament? The New Testament, they didn't do it. There was no money being invested in buildings. All of it was invested in building the body. And we come back to my question. Everything written to a church was written based on the setting of that church then. There is no anticipation given in the scriptures for, well, you know, 2,000 years from now, um, real estate's going to be expensive. And they're going to have to buy expensive real estate. And they're going to need to use quite a bit of my money for this expensive real estate. And so we've got to make sure that we, by the way, did God 2,000 years ago know about buildings being bought 2,000 years later? We didn't catch him off guard with the things that we're doing, did we? He's not caught off. He's not surprised by it. But there's nothing in the scriptures to anticipate or forecast that. There's no allowances given for that possibility occurring. We only have the commands, and the commands do not allow for wiggle room. The the commands don't allow for split up the pie. Use half of it here and use half of it where I want you to use it. The church that gives all of God's money to ministry, Or the church that gives half? Which one pleases God? The first one. But what a far cry. You know, there's another thing that's plaguing the church. It's not just spectator Christianity. It's consumerism. Why would I say consumerism has begun to plague the church? How do you get all these people to flock to a building? All right, well, all right, you can make it look nice. That's one way. What other ways? I'm sorry? Yeah. Francis Chan started a church in his home. It grew into a mega church. Thousands were in attendance. One of his elders came to him after a service one Sunday and he said to him, Is God pleased? And Francis Chan looks at him with this stunned look and he says, What do you mean, is God pleased? Look at all these people. 
Look at all these people. And the elder said to him, I'd like to challenge you to think about doing something. He said, you know the prayer meeting that we have during the week? He said, yeah. He says, I'd like you to, I'd like you to seriously consider making an announcement that we're just going to have a prayer meeting. There's going to be no Bible study. There's going to be no kids programs. There's going to be absolutely nothing to coincide with it. It's just going to be purely a prayer meeting. William McDonald used to say, and I'll never forget when he used to tell us this, he used to say that the meeting that is exclusively about God is the least one attended. Now, why would I say the prayer meeting is exclusively about God? You're praying. You're praying. And who are you praying to? To God, right? But now, if there's music associated with it, you can make the argument right? That, well, the music is Godward, and perhaps it is. But what Francis Chan found out when he tried this little exercise is the prayer meeting was not being attended as much as it was before. That began the process of him leaving his megachurch. He started to realize that the reason why there were so many people coming, it wasn't exclusively for God. It, it was because of all the other things. So he started a house church. And now he's got a house church movement in Northern California. But when you read a lot of what he's learned through the question, is God pleased? Are we willing to ask that question and apply that question and the answer to that question to everything we do? Is God pleased with half of his money going in directions other than the areas he's commanded? Is God pleased with a spectator Christianity environment where just a handful of people participate and almost everyone else just kind of sits back and observes? Is God pleased with that? Is that being obedient? What say you? We got we got 12 minutes. I purposely left uh, a, a service or a lesson short to, to have a conversation. Yeah, like we saw this a lot in the area of health. People came to collect because they didn't see the things that they thought the church was about. They didn't see the music, getting light, getting they wanted this kind of music or that kind of music or this or whatever.
there was literally people that came in there. Well, you don't have enough kids in this kids ministry for me to be here. Do you, Do you think it's possible that we Christians can be selfish? <laughs> Do you think it's possible that we choose a church? We choose a church, not often. But we, we choose a church because of what that church can do for me. Well, but again, everybody's everybody's walk to God is in a different place. You know, there's young Christians, there's people that aren't Christians, and we don't know. They don't know. They're going to go to church. When did churches come out of the scene? You're talking about the home church. What did churches, in the context in which they are now, when did they, when did they start to materialize? 300 AD. You mean a building? Yeah, like a building, a church, like where people go to, to a church. When did that start to happen? Well, it's only happened really in a couple continents in, in, in the whole world. I mean, the, the church in the world has, for the most part, always been a small, persecuted house church. So when movement. it stopped becoming persecuted, it started to grow. It started to become larger, yeah. so which also had, runs contradiction to the scriptures because well, it's the persecuted church that. But grows. If, if more people are being saved, and that's not the big whether they are or aren't. If more people are being saved because it's getting larger and there's a building, is that a good thing or a bad thing? This guy Chan you're talking about, he had a big mega church, mm-hmm. and then whatever epiphany they had, then he went to a small home church. Then he's writing a book. But now more people are reading his book than people that will be attending his thousand-person church. So he's now reaching more people than what he reached in his thousand-person church because he's now going back to the basics of a small church. So if he's still growing the church body by reaching people and people coming to Christ, whether it's a big church or a small church, does that really matter? These are just food for thought. Well, here, pragmatism is a dangerous thing. And, And people can get caught up in pragmatism where the end can justify the means. Um, the Bible-believing Christian never begins with, and what could the results be? The Bible-believing Christian always begins with, what does the Bible say? And I'm not going to deviate from what the Bible says, regardless of the results. Because the issue is that, you know, when when we talk about salvation in the church, it's a done deal. The end has been God's already done it because God is the one doing it. So whether the Chan fell out and starts up a mega church or not, the people that are going to be saved out of that group of people are saved. Their names were written before the beginning of time. You know what I mean? That's why justifying the means to get to this end is not the right way to look at it. That's just a piggyback on Pastor's thought because it is not about getting to this magical end, and no matter what we do, it's how you do it, what your intentions are, and whether it's the right way to do it. And those are your three questions to ask, because there's all kinds of things that we can do that are still sin if the motivation is wrong. But it's not that as if, see, we can look back, we can look back at history and go, here's what it is. When they wrote this, they couldn't see what we see. They're forging ahead. They're writing what yeah, but God the Holy Spirit God could well, see. God he thought. Yeah. Not sure. Like, and he just came up who's, with it. Who's the author of the Bible? Well, yeah. I'm, and I'm God. not saying the end justifies the means. But as the church came onto the scene, and now it's, everything's expanding. Okay? Everything's expanding. Whether the people's names are written in there at the beginning of time, there's still a time in which they come to God. 
Correct. But that's happen. when they came to God. But that'll happen. It's not It's not an excuse not to do nothing, but it will happen. The, the yeah. issue is, is that you got to understand that as soon as the church became um, unpersecuted and unsmall, which was around 327 AD or 627 AD, some, I don't remember the name. It was fairly early. Yeah. And as soon as it did that, right away heresy crept into the church. And major heresy crept into the church. Well, you're saying that we shouldn't be concerned about the end. We should be concerned about the you're always you're, you're always concerned about what you need to do for God. We should be more concerned about the means than about the ends. Right. Well, and here's the other thing we learned from God. God, God uses us in spite of us. Yeah. Um, you know, and if we refuse, he'll just get somebody else to do it. Well, I mean, he even, you remember what Paul said to the Philippians? Um, he says, Some are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition and strife, uh, some are preaching with pure motives. And then he said, What, what a lot of what stymies a lot of people, what I really care about is that Christ is preached. And so. You can take a person with an impure motive, right? You could take, forgive me for bringing it up, you could take a, a James McDonald who clearly has demonstrated some impure <coughs> motives in his ministry. And, and, and people will still get saved. So now, here's the, here's the trick bag that a lot of Christians fall prey to. We ought to try to become like Jim. Well, a lot of people will because say, they they're not looking at it as if it's like, hey, let's take that in pure perspective. They may be following a model that is not known to them as being impure. And again, I know the Bible. No, no, I'm not talking about the model. I'm talking about the person. Well, yeah. The person is impure, which is exactly the kind of people Paul's writing about in Philippians. Some of these preachers were impure. Their hearts weren't right. Their motivations <laughs> weren't right. They were they were doing it for selfish ambition. And and so but God can still use them anyway. But what I'm saying is, is we have a tendency in the church to follow. Right. We, we have a tendency to follow and mimic. The modern church that's right before us. And if we think they're experiencing success, we immediately gravitate to, well, what are they doing to have this? And so now you get a you start to replicate and replicate, and then a new phenomenon starts, and you'll start to replicate that. What I'm trying to suggest is let's not look to the modern church for our guide. Let's look to the early church for our guide. Let's look to the church in the scriptures for our guide and follow them. Because no church has ever had the kind of results they've had. But what sets them apart? What sets them apart? from the churches that you see today. More interaction. Well, that's, that's where I mean, my thoughts. Yeah, that would, that would be one thing. And we're going to start to learn that. We're going to start to look at the sort of things that took place with our Lord when he gathered in homes with people. And, and you know what happened? What's happening here? Q&A, conversation. I mean, have you ever left a sermon on Sunday thinking to yourself, I think I got what he said. Well, he didn't say that. Yes, he did. That's what I heard. We discuss afterwards. 
Yeah, and sometimes two people can hear one sermon and they walk away with something completely different. Oh, yeah. Right? Or you're keyed in on a certain part of it more than you are the next. Our minds, it's hard to just say, to just drill in every second of every minute on any specific topic. It's not the easiest thing to do. That's not that easy to do. So what, what does this do then? It brings to light, it brings on some level to light that missing ingredient in the, he talks for 30 minutes or 40 minutes. My job now is to exit the building, you know, or race to my favorite person in the pew and catch up on what happened this week, you know, but what we're doing is what we're going to learn. They did in the scriptures. They didn't just have a lesson. They talked about the lesson they just had. Yeah. So what did you hear me say today? I mean, since I brought that up, what, what did you hear the gist of the lesson that I had this morning? Buildings are bad. No, no, I'm not saying that. That, that, that misstates that. Church buildings are bad. No, that, that misstates. It's less than a thousand bricks. Otherwise, that misstates the big idea. The big idea is, does bigger interfere with Bible? It can. It can. It doesn't mean it does. But are you willing? Like that Chan lost the idea of why he started the church in the first place. And he got so big and so... Oh, no. I don't think he lost. I think he discovered something. Right. Well, but he didn't control it. I mean, could he have grown and controlled? And not directed it. I know you can't, in a thousand-member church, talk to everybody, but can't you teach the Bible... Oh, yeah, you can. Sure, yeah, you can. But see, that's what we're going to learn. There's a lot of things. Yeah, you can kill 1,000 birds or one bird or 1,000 birds with one stone. Right. Okay, so if I got 1,000 people in the audience and I deliver one sermon to all 1,000, if if I do a good job and if the Spirit of God is illuminating what I'm saying and everybody there, their hearts are right to hear, everybody ought to be able to walk away and, and know what they heard. 3,000 people got saved in one day from one sermon. So God can, God can so kill 3,000 3, people there listening to it. Right. And so 3,000 people, but you see, what I'm trying to get us to realize is that there are commands given to the church that 3,000 people in one church can't obey. You're bringing up one area. Could 3,000 people sing the same song together? Of course. Of course. So, so each one has a psalm, and if we use Richard saying, well, here's one area where I think in a larger church setting, where I'm not suggesting in a larger church setting all the commands are disobeyed. I'm just pointing out the ones that are disobeyed, not, not all of them. And so it's quite possible, yeah, 3,000 people can lift up their voices to God together and praise. Because I remember Mary Hill, you saw the words on the screen, is it? That's a nice song, and it means something, and it says something, and everybody in the church is singing it and reading it. Yeah, so that would be one aspect where that wouldn't fall into the category of what I'm talking about, okay? But if I got a building that requires 30 to 40 percent of the pie to be invested in that pie to that building, okay? But if everybody... Us what they what what you teach and everybody understands it, isn't it worth that investment? 
talk about that. How is it worth it? Because what you're preaching is understood by everybody in that church. You know, and like okay. when you say 30 to 40 percent, I mean, if it's just to operate the building, you know, not make more, not, you know, then it, to me it's worth it. Okay. James makes that whole church was given to him for a dollar. For a dollar, yeah. So sometimes land is donated. Somebody's, you know, maybe they put in a trust, they pass away or something. I'm going to, here's the X, Y's, and Z's. So it's given, you know. Sure, there's applications where yeah. churches go out and buy land or they buy stuff or they have to build a building and at some point. It, That's why I'm not making the argument that this is house churches versus small and larger church buildings. That misstates what I'm talking about. That's not the issue. The issue is, can Bible or can bigger interfere with Bible? And if it can, when can it? So what's the magic number? 27? Yeah. 35? Well, if, I, if, I, if I try and, because I mean, your, your question is okay, or I don't want to say it's good or bad, whatever it is, it is what it is. The question. Yeah. Okay. But if I look at the scripture, or this one verse that you brought up about 26, but all going to be done for education. And if I take that and Jonathan takes that, everybody takes it, we all kind of try and apply it. If we have something, okay? The question of the church size is kind of a, like like you just said, where's that added number? Right. I don't know. It's always that So I mean, so I mean, if, so I mean if, now, now if we come together and Mike brings a lesson and we think it's <laughs> wonderful and it just, it's so wonderful that next, next week 300 people more show up here. But I'm not okay? Then we reach a point where it's like, okay, now no, Mike just led us down the wrong path because we're too big. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't exist. It, well, you know, it, like, we, like where it says in the scripture, 3,000 got saved. Well, those 3,000 had to meet somewhere, whether they split up into, you know, a whole bunch of 30 people groups. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I don't care what the size is. I'm not saying that I, I don't And care. I don't either. But... I, but yeah. it doesn't matter if you're small or it could be 10 people here and we could be doing the wrong thing. Exactly. That's so, why it's so, not about house so, churches versus small yeah, and large. It's, it's, it's like all we, about what does the all, Bible we say. All have to, we all have to be led by what the scriptures right. say. Exactly. It doesn't matter if there's three of us or 300. Right. Or it's not a quantitative issue. You can have nine people disobeying God. I agree that when you have a bigger thing, it's probably harder to kind of... Well, some you know, things don't even... They almost become virtually impossible. Yeah. When, 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 you're, when you're so large, there are some scriptures that become virtually impossible. 1 Corinthians 14 and 26 would become a very difficult command to obey, mm -hmm. okay, if you're going to have a gathering where each people, each person in that congregation can't participate in that meeting, okay? So now, to be able to wrap our heads around that, when everything we've ever been exposed to, every one of us has been exposed to, doesn't resemble anything remotely close to that. In other words, that is so foreign to most Christians, that verse, that each person, when we got together, was actually participating in the meeting. That is so foreign mm -hmm that most people don't even know that existed. So to them, they don't have the foggiest idea of what we're talking about. Don't you think some of it's being done right now? 
right now as we speak, you mean, or yeah, right now in other churches? Right now as we speak. Yeah, I think we're, I think this. I mean, a lot of people are participating in my book, and I think it's edifying for a lot of other people. I, I agree. I mean, I think what you've been reading is what's going on. I agree. I agree. But, but it's happening by default. And that's what I'm trying to make us realize, is that, that what God intended happens naturally when the nature of the gathering allows for it. You put 300 more people into this room, okay, and the only thing we're going to be thinking about is, is it's stuffy, it's warm, I'm sweating, I can't wait to get out of here, uh, Utica falls over the railing, and, you know, and, and we're not even going to be thinking about it. But you see, but you see what, Bob, what Bob is saying is it's happened naturally, and that's what I'm trying to get us to see. That what we're reading is happening right in front of us. Because the facility allows for it. Most churches, they, here's your bulletin. This is what we're going to do. It doesn't include you get to ask a question. You get no. to get up and walk out the door. Yeah. Well, you could still, even in churches, there's still other time for that. Let's just say the Sunday service, the magic hour. That may not allow for that at that, but if. Anybody in any church, if you decide you wanted to talk to a pastor, an associate pastor, or somebody associated with the hierarchy or structure, you can do so. You can make an appointment. But, what it, what it but that has nothing to do with a gathering. No, I know. Well, it, 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 it won't edify the other 300. No, I, no, I get that. It, it, and at some point, they might not say, well, okay, you're going to be involved in the church service. Yeah, at some point, numbers. The number do about right, it. Well, they should what do it after Mass, have a Q&A. Well, but that doesn't yeah. mean you still can't participate in, and, if you, and again, let's just say the church doesn't meet, or you look at it and you go, wow, this is just so far off the beaten path. Some churches may be better suited for you know, the biblical context, even though they're a large church, than others. So people may go to that church and go, gee, I've met with the pastor, I've met with these people, the message isn't right. I mean, many people here have gone to different churches and said, not right, they leave it. Okay, so you can always leave a church, too. You can go find a church that fits more of that model. But at some point, you're going to have numbers. And if if all the people that are getting saved around the world, if everything has to meet in 20, 30, 40, 50, X number size churches, is big good bad? You know, I mean, your original question, is big bad? Well, not necessarily, but it might be. And the same thing as Bob. Small could be bad, too. But you can sure. always partake. And guess what? All the churches in the Bible were small, and some of them were pretty bad. <laughs> Sure. Uh, that's yeah. why that's why they needed corrective letters written to them and epistles written to them because I'm not guaranteeing that small equates to success. No, I know you're. Not. I'm saying there are some commands in the Scripture that are possibly able to be obeyed in a smaller setting that are almost virtually impossible to be obeyed in a larger setting. Some of the commands, not all of the commands, some of the commands. So the question becomes, what is your view of the commands? Is it an all or nothing at all proposition? Can I just obey 75% of them and disobey 25%? Does God allow for that kind of thinking? Or is God looking for us to have absolute loyalty to his word? And if we discover that, you know what, I'm not able to obey this command because of like, let's say, for example, a person just can't go to church. Should we go to church? Should we gather together with God's people? 
Should we? Suppose. I mean, is it a command? Yeah. Okay. And 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 now, so let's assume somebody decides to say, you know what, I'm going to work seven days a week.